Now, friends, we come today to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John. And I want to say that we have concluded now the upper room discourse that began in John 13 and goes through 17, and it concluded with this wonderful prayer of the Lord Jesus. And he prayed to the Father, not to us, but he prayed, and it's recorded that you and I might know what he prays for us today. It's the longest prayer in the Bible, and you can read it in three minutes, and that ought to tell you or me something about the length of our prayers, by the way. Augustine made this statement concerning it, and I'll conclude the Upper Room Discourse and this 17th chapter with the statement of Augustine. It's easiest in regards to words, but most profound in regards to ideas. And certainly, that is a true statement. Now, as we come to the 18th chapter, actually, there's no letdown, because we've come now to the final days in the life of our Lord. fact of the matter is, we're going to see that he was arrested in this chapter and taken before Annas and Caiaphas. And this chapter is different, actually, than the presentation that we have in the Synoptic Gospels. And in the Synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The emphasis in those three Gospels is upon the humanity of Christ, his human nature. And the emphasis is upon the sufferings of the Savior. You will notice that in the first three Gospels, again and again as he approached Jerusalem for the last time, he said, I go to Jerusalem to die. And he mentions his death, his treatment in the hands of the Gentiles, and then his death upon the cross and his bodily resurrection. That's the emphasis in the first three Gospels. But the emphasis in John, as we've said, is upon the deity of the Lord Jesus. He is the God-man in this Gospel. And as a result, the emphasis here is upon his glory. And he'll not talk here so much about his death and resurrection. We'll have it recorded And in all of it, we'll see the glory of our Lord, even in his arrest, in his death, and his ascension back into heaven. But we have an emphasis here upon the fact that he's going to return to the Father. As you go through this section, you find that it's his return to the Father. You remember back in that upper room discourse, again and again he mentions, I'm going back to the Father. He mentioned it in the 13th chapter, the 14th chapter, the 16th chapter, and the 17th chapter. In every chapter but one. And this is in accord with the fact of the glory of our Lord here. Now, let's get into the chapter, and as we do, I'm going to read now verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden, into the which he entered, and his disciples. Now, in this particular chapter, there are certain things that we want to call attention to, And I want to emphasize, that is his majesty and his meekness. 
and he seems to have spent his nights under the open sky. Have you ever noticed he was born in a stable? He was arrested, and not in a fine home, but in a garden. And we are going to see something here that's quite startling, even in these humble circumstances. Now, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Well, this upper room discourse. Then he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron. Now, this crossing of the brook Kidron is to me quite interesting. Why did he leave Jerusalem, and why did he go out to that place? Well, to begin with, he was accustomed to go there. This was the place that he went time and time again. We're told, for instance, here in the second verse, "...and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples." Now, it's Luke, though, that tells us in the 21st chapter, verse 37, he says, "...and in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives." Now, as best we can tell, he never spent a night in the city of Jerusalem proper, in the walled city. He went out, for instance, during that last week to Bethany, stayed with his friends out there. Then this last night, though, he didn't even spend it inside the city. He had that upper room, and I would have thought he would abode in that room all night, but he didn't. He'd said, Arise, let us go hence. And now he crosses the brook Kidron, and he goes to this place that we call, of course, the Garden of Gethsemane. And again, you'll notice that when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, John does not record his agony. John does not record the fact he fell on his face, because he's speaking of the glory and not the agony of Christ, as we shall see. He's putting the emphasis upon the deity, as the other Gospels put the emphasis upon his humanity. Now, we also note that Luke says that he went again in Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, and he came out and went as he was wont, that is, as he was accustomed, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And this evidently was the place, because it is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And that would seem to be the reason that he went out. I think it's interesting to note that he crossed over the brook Kidron. I wonder if that reminds any of you who are Bible students of another who crossed the Kidron. Well, it's back in the 15th chapter, Second Samuel, when you will recall that David was betrayed, in fact, his own son. You remember Absalom led a rebellion against them, and Ahithophel, his very wonderful friend, so-called, betrayed him. It's awful when Christians do things like that today, by the way. And you will recall that after Judas had made his covenant to betray our Lord, he went across the brook Kidron. And then there's something here that I don't want you to miss. Why did he go over there to this quiet place? He's giving his enemies an opportunity now to take him. 
You see, they wanted to lay hands on him, but they were afraid of the people, and they wouldn't dare lay hands on him in the temple or in the streets of Jerusalem. So he goes out to this quiet place, and in the dead of night, they come out to arrest him. You see, he's now not resisting, but he's now the Lamb of God that offers no resistance as a sheep. Before a shearer is dumb, he opened not his mouth. He's now yielding himself, and the dignity of his person at this time, friends, is absolutely, it's overwhelming. So let's not miss this. And then, of course, it also gave this man Judas Iscariot an opportunity to know where he would be, and he was able to bring them out to this place here. I think this is very important to know. Before the Lord Jesus, you remember when they closed in on him, I think disappeared miraculously. In fact, we were told when they took up stones to cast at him, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That, you'll recall, was back in the 8th chapter. And then in chapter 12, verse 36, it says, "...these things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them." They were not able to locate him, you see, up to this time. Now, why, he lays himself wide open to be taken. And this, I think, is very important for us to note. Now, notice what's going to happen. Verse 3, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. And don't miss that. You remember that he said to them, Luke records this in Luke 22:52. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. Now, how many came out? Well, a great company, we are told here, with a band of men. Well, how many was the band? Well, it signifies actually a detachment of Roman soldiers, which Pilate obviously had granted for the occasion. And the word means the tenth part of a legion, and it consisted, therefore, of approximately 500 men. Now, the critic, of course, as he's questioned everything else, he's questioned this. And Matthew says it was a great multitude. And here, the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, and you remember that Luke made it very clear. The Lord Jesus says, "...be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves." Why did they bring this company? You know, there's one thing the crowd in that day knew and were impressed upon. He could perform a miracle, and they thought that they could take him with a great company of soldiers. And he, therefore, you know, asked the question. And notice the dignity of our Lord in verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knoweth all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Notice the dignity of him. They're coming out, and he says to him, Who are you after? Why are you bringing all of these weapons? Well, those weapons, if he had not yielded himself, they would have been absolutely fruitless. They would have been worthless. They would have been of no avail had he wanted to defend himself. So we find here 
Jesus, knowing all things that should come upon him, he knew what was going to take place. He went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Then, friends, I want you to notice something that you might pass over, and I wouldn't have you miss this for anything in the world. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And do you notice they do not accord him the dignity that belonged to him? They are not recognizing him as Simon Peter did. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And that is all right, because that's a name that is going to be above every name someday. And at that time, why, even those under the earth, even hell itself, will have to bow to even the name of Jesus of Nazareth. They'd never acknowledge him as being Christ, the Savior, the Son of the living God. Now, here is the thing that I don't want you to miss at all. They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And for a moment there, they did not even know him. And the thing that is strange above everything else is the fact that Judas didn't know him at first. Why didn't Judas know him? He'd been with him three years. Listen to what Paul says later on. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, "...but if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not." May I say to you, we are told that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, their foolishness unto him, because they are spiritually discerned." And Judas couldn't know him now as he stands there, I think, the Lord of glory. He didn't know him. And today, the unsaved don't know him. And I don't care how much you read the Bible even, or you are religious today. I listened to something the other day on the television. It was an interview with several church leaders, and these men represent liberal denominations, and they represent the organization that is entirely liberal. And they talked about the moral condition today. Then they talked about a man who'd been converted out of Judaism, and he had become a Christian. And they were tempted to explain it. Friends, if it hadn't been so tragic, it would have been laughable. They talked about moral values. They talked about his background, and they talked about everything that was humanistic, and they approached it from the philosophical standpoint. It never even occurred to them that this man had, for the first time, seen Jesus of Nazareth as he really was, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the interesting thing is, they didn't see him either. It would have been laughable if it hadn't have been so tragic. Judas didn't know him, friends, when he first came out. Now, somebody said that he went out to point him out. He did. And our Lord, we'll see in a moment, did something. And then after that, they were able to take him. But they couldn't touch him until that moment. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I'm he. Now, he actually identified himself 
And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And John lets you know that he was there but didn't know him until the Lord Jesus identified himself and said who he was. And that, by the way, doesn't end this at all, because here we come to this which is quite wonderful, and I want to cover this today. Verse 6, As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now, this is the thing that is, to me, marvelous indeed. In fact, it is something that, for the few moments, why, he reveals his glory. This is the section that reveals his glory. And John says, The Word was made flesh and tabernacled here among us, pitched his tent, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And even in this hour, this dark hour, when he's yielding himself as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, even then he reveals his deity here. And they fall backward. And I want you to notice that. They didn't fall forward to worship him. They fell backward in fear and in absolute dismay. I think there was utter confusion for a moment there when they fell backward. And friends, he's more than Jesus of Nazareth that they seek. He is the Lord of glory. He is God revealed in human flesh. When God became man, there's a little book I had. We offered it at Christmas time, and that book is still available if you'd like to have it. I think it's very important. That book has been sent out to missionaries on the field. It has gone around the globe, this little book, and God has wonderfully used it. I think it's important to know who he is today. And, in fact, it's very important to know who he is. Now, they fell backward. And this is in fulfillment of prophecy, friends. In the 27th Psalm, in verses 1 and 2, listen to this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. May I say to you, that reveals the Godward side of this person. And let me say, that psalm is theocentric. But you go now to Psalm 35, and that's anthropocentric. That means it's man-centered, or this looks toward the manward side. And will you listen to this? He says, "...let them be confounded and put to shame that seek after my soul. Let them be turned back and brought to confusion that devise my hurt." What a picture we have here. Let them be ashamed and confounded together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Let them be driven backward and put to shame that wish me evil. And that, my friend, is what this 40th Psalm says. What a fulfillment we have here when our Lord for a brief moment revealed his glory to them. Jesus of Nazareth they are seeking. Well, here he is, but he's the Lord of glory. And then will you notice what the Lord Jesus did? And my friend, notice his dignity now. 
He's still in charge of everything. Jesus answered, he says, I've told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. And he gives them a command to let his disciples go. And you know what they did? Listen, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. And that's fulfillment of what he said in his prayer. He's just prayed a prayer. Father, I haven't lost one of them. Now the Lord Jesus says, you let them go. And do you know what this crowd did that came out to arrest him? They let them go. They only wanted him after all. And even this man, Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it. He smote the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, why didn't they arrest Simon Peter for that? Well, then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then we are told, Dr. Luke, you know, gives us that. He put the ear back on. They didn't arrest him, you see. Why? Because the Lord Jesus said, You let these men go. I've talked to God about them, my Father about them, and he's going to let them go. And you're going to let them go, and they let them go, my friends. Jesus is in charge. Oh, the dignity of this man, even in this hour when he yields himself to death for you and me. Simon Peter did well with the sword, I would say, because he was a fisherman, not a soldier, and he was accustomed to use a fishing net, but he was not good with a sword because he really only got the ear, but he went after the man's neck, and he only got the ear. And we're grateful for that. Our Lord told him to put up the sword. Why? Because of the fact that our Lord now is yielding himself into the hand of his captors. And he's getting ready, as he says, to take the cup which the Father hath given me. Now, what kind of a cup is this cup that he's talking about? And the other gospel writers tell us that was his prayer in the garden. Well, there are several cups that are mentioned in Scripture. I don't propose to say how many. Some think three, some four, some five. But let me just suggest several. There's, first of all, the cup of salvation. You remember the psalmist says in Psalm 116, 13, I will take the cup of salvation and call unto the name of the Lord. And then there is the cup of consolation. It's called that in Jeremiah 16, 7. Neither shall men tear themselves for them in mourning to comfort them for the dead. Neither shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or for their mother. And then you'll recall that the psalmist in Psalm 23, 5 speaks of the fact, My cup runneth over, that cup of comfort and consolation. Now here is this cup. This is the cup that the Father has given him. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now that was a dreadful cup. It was an awful cup. And that is the cup of judgment that he bore for us on the cross. It's an awful cup. It's the judgment cup that everyone must take that turns their back on Jesus Christ. But this is the cup, actually, that only he could drink, and in the way he did, because 
his perfect humanity, his sinless life, absolutely it turned in rejection from that cup. He responded to it by it being repulsive and being hateful to him because it is the cup of your sin and my sin. And then, of course, there's the cup of judgment that is yet to come on this world. I think that's what the seven vials, which are really bowls of wrath, that are to be poured upon the wicked. And the psalmist again says, "...upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup." And by the way, that's Psalm eleven six, And it's the wine cup of the fury that's in his hand. But notice how he speaks of this cup here. Shall I not drink this cup that my Father, not the judge, shall give me, but my Father shall give me? And this is not a cup of, actually, in the final analysis of reluctance, it was for the joy that was set before him. And this is the highest willingness. What he's really saying is just simply this. He says, shall I not drink this cup my Father gives me? Since my Father's giving it to me, I'm going to drink it. And there's no willingness as high as that. It's not as if he said, my Father commanded me to do it. He's the judge, and I'm going to drink it. That's not the thought here at all, by the way. I thought it was important to emphasize that because this is so misunderstood. Now we're told in verse 12, Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews, and here we're to understand this to mean the religious rulers. The nation Israel as a people have actually accepted him at this point but not rejected him. It's the religious rulers. And the religious rulers were afraid of the people, by the way. And it's the reason our Lord went outside the city to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's laying himself wide open to them now. And he's going forward in his dignity and in his glory. And they took Jesus and they bound him. Now, it wasn't necessary. He's the lamb that slain even before the foundation of the world, and he openeth not his mouth. As a sheep before a shearer's is dumb, and as a lamb, he's not offering resistance at all. He could have. Now notice this, and this is important to get. And they led him away to Annas first. And only John gives us that. And John apparently was in a position to see something that very few would see in that day. They led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now, Annas had been high priest. But the question arises, then what is the difference here? Well, the difference is simply this. Caiaphas is the one that the Roman government accepted. But the religious high priest, the head of the religious group, was old Annas. And in my book, friends, and as I've stated in my notes here, he had not only formally been a high priest, he was for the religious leaders, he was the high priest, and they take him to Annas. And this man is clever and satanic. And he was a politician who knew how to handle Rome. And it's my judgment that it was he who plotted the arrest 
and the trial of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus. Why, the entire trial, as we shall see, was a mockery. But this man, you see his hand back of it all. And he's the one that examined Jesus first. But you'll notice that actually we do not have the details of that. But it was Annas in the background that was directing all of this. Now, notice what we have in verse 14, which I think sometimes is, again, misunderstood. Now, Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews, that is, to the religious rulers, that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, he had given this because of his position as high priest that was accepted by Rome. And this is a superstitious belief they had that one would die for the people and would protect the nation from Rome. And the reason I think John gives this is to show us that it was already predetermined that the Lord Jesus was to die. They had already decided that, and this was given, and the trial therefore becomes nothing in the world but a mockery. Now we have here the incident that reveals Simon Peter, and we have here, therefore, this very definite thing. Will you notice here? But Peter stood at the door without, then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Now, this was John, obviously. Now, John apparently had an inn with those in Jerusalem that would enable him to get a pass for anyone else to come in. Now, Simon Peter was having to stand outside, and there were soldiers outside. Simon Peter was with them. Now, John brings him, actually, into the inner court, gets a permit for him to come into the inner court. It's well to see this byplay, and this was in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, where all of this now took place. And will you notice it? And we'll go through it, I think, rather rapidly. Then said the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. Now, if you'll notice the byplay, outside of the palace grounds, the people were gathered and soldiers were gathered to keep the crowd. There weren't too many at this time of the morning, but they were gathered out there. So there was a fire built, and Simon Peter came up to the fire there. And you know what he's going to do, don't you? He's going to talk. And while he's talking, I have a notion several listened to him. They said, that fellow's from Galilee. And this girl that kept the gate there, she recognized that he was from Galilee. And his followers were there from Galilee. And I guess she probably assumed he was one of them. And she just asked the question. Is I think he went through the gate to go in the inner court. says, aren't you one of this man's disciples? And he said, I'm not. I think and he just walked on through. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Now, inside the court there was a fire, and Peter comes up to that one. Now, you'd think by now he'd learned his lesson, but he hasn't. He didn't learn his lesson until after Pentecost. 
Now, will you notice our attention is directed back to the trial of the Lord Jesus. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. In other words, he said, why are you asking me this? Because what I've done hasn't been done in a corner. It hasn't been done secretly. And there are many witnesses would tell you what I've taught. Now, notice the dignity of the Lord Jesus at a time like this. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? What would you have done at a time like that, friends, if you'd been struck in the face? Well, I don't know. I think probably unthinking I might strike back. And I'm of the opinion you might do that. He didn't strike back. What dignity, even when he's subjected here to this type of humiliation. He's yielding himself now because he's going to die for your sin and my sin. Now, next time, instead of this time, I will examine what the death of Christ meant to different groups, by the way. And that'll be very important to see. But let me move on here. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now, the Lord Jesus is calling his attention to the fact that everything they're doing at this time is illegal. It's contrary to to the Mosaic law. Their charge is that he broke the Mosaic law. They're breaking it to begin with. No trial is to begin at night or to end at night or to begin on the same day and end on the same day. And they're breaking their own law at this time. And they were not to smite a prisoner who has not yet been proven guilty. Now, will you notice verse 24? Now, Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. So we have no record of what really took place. And we don't need it, because Annas is the one that's plotted and planned all of this diabolical plot, by the way. Now, verse 25. Here we go back to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. And you can see that great fisherman standing there warming himself, and he gets warm, and what does he do? They said, Therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I'm not. How did they determine it? By his speech. Did Simon Peter talk? Well, he got there and got warm. He's now brought on the inner court. He wants to talk. So he begins to talk to them. And they ask the question, Listen now, one of the servants of the high priest being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and I think this time vociferously, because this happens to be the kinsman of the man whose ear he's cut off. And immediately, though, the cock crew. What did Simon Peter do? He went out and wept at this time, friends, because the Lord has made a way back to himself. And you'll recall that he appeared to Simon Peter personally. Now, will you notice this? 
Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas under the hall of judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Now, this is quite interesting. Here's religion and the real article put down by the side of each other. Here is the one who's come to fulfill the Passover. And he's going to die on the cross, and they're trying to get a death sentence against him. But because they couldn't eat the Passover if they went inside of the home of a Gentile or a building of the Gentiles, so they can't go inside the judgment hall. So they send in the Caiaphas and say, we can't come in from religious reasons. And they have the Passover offering with them. But they don't know it. How blind religion can be even to this good day. Now, will you notice, then led they Jesus from Caiaphas into the hall of judgment. And you see, they're in a hurry to get a verdict against him. And they have Pilate come out. Now, you're going to have a byplay, as John gives it. First, we'll have a scene outside where Jesus is before the people and Pilate is there. Then Pilate will take him on the inside and speak with him there. And they will go inside, then outside, then inside, and then outside, and then inside. It's quite a byplay here, and that'll take us on into the 19th chapter. Now, will you notice, I'm reading verse 29. They're outside now. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. They make it clear they want the death penalty, you see. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. Immediately Pilate senses that something's wrong. He wants nothing to do with the trial. So he wants to dismiss it, say, well, you go and take it. And then the Jews, therefore, and it's obvious now that we're talking about the religious rulers of Israel. The religious rulers therefore said unto him, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And they make it clear now they want the death penalty. They are not able to do it. You see, Christ told his own way up here in Caesarea Philippi six months before, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'll be delivered into the hands of Gentiles, and they'll crucify me. And these men are merely carrying out his orders. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. You see, that's the reason he's being delivered into the hands here of the Gentiles, that is, of Rome. Now Pilate takes him inside. Now we go inside. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? This man is dumbfounded. You don't mean to tell me that there's somebody around claiming to be king of the Jews and would have the audacity to be brought to me on that charge. Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of thee? In other words, are you getting this second hand or not? Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? 
I want to know. They have asked the death penalty. I don't see any charge to merit it. Jesus answered, listen to him now, my kingdom is not of this world. The little preposition there is very important. It's ek, and it actually literally means my kingdom is not out of this world. What he's saying is this, not that his kingdom's not going to be on this world or on the earth, for it is someday, but his kingdom is not a kingdom that comes about through worldly measures, sinful machinations, and by the politics of this world. Jesus won't be elected king down here by the Democrats or the Republicans or by the United Nations, friends. That's not the way he comes to power. His kingdom is not a kingdom built upon the things of this world that bring nothing in the world but war and turmoil and hatred and bitterness, and that's the story of mankind. He says, my kingdom is not in this world. It's not this kind of a kingdom. If my kingdom were of this world or in this world, then would my servants fight. But he says, you notice I'm not offering any resistance. I'm not contending for it, that I should not be delivered to the Jews or the religious rulers. But now is my kingdom not from hence. It's not built on this present system, the present political systems of the world. And that's the reason, friends, the church can't build the kingdom down here. He will establish it. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Pilate is definitely puzzled at this point. We'll talk about him next time. Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I'm a king. You're right, I am a king. That's what he says. But to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into this world. He's born king of the Jews that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. In other words, that spirit tipped him. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And he's standing in the presence of the one who can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, that is, to the religious rulers. Here we go outside again. Saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Pilate stands there absolutely amazed. He can't believe they've asked for Barabbas and want Jesus crucified. We'll see that next time. Now, we began last time in the 18th chapter, the trial of the Lord Jesus. First of all, he was brought before Annas. We have no record of that trial. He was the religious high priest, and he was a conniving rascal if there ever was one, satanic to the very core. It's my judgment that he planned the very trial of Jesus. Then our Lord was brought before Caiaphas to make legal, and of course it was nothing in the world but a mockery, the trial of the Lord Jesus, for they had already predetermined his death. And then we found that they could not hand down a death judgment. Caiaphas, his was a religious court, and they determined there to bring him, therefore, before Pilate. 
And then we saw that Pilate came outside to the judgment hall that was outside. He listened to their plea immediately. He wanted to get off the hook, if I may use the common colloquialism of the street. But he found out immediately they wouldn't let him. He said, you take him and judge him. But they said, we want the death penalty. And he couldn't quite fathom all that was taking place at the moment he called Jesus inside and asked him. He said, you really are not a king, are you? And then our Lord explained to him that his kingdom is not of the world in the sense it'll be in the world someday. But it doesn't come into existence the way kingdoms down here come into existence, through war and political maneuvering and that which takes place in the sinful hearts of man. And therefore, it would be altogether different. And then Pilate is puzzled. He says, are you a king? He said, yes, I am a king. But you would not be able to discover it, neither others, because Pilate even then asked the question, what is truth? Then he took the Lord Jesus back outside, and he said to these religious rulers, I find nothing to accuse this man of. There's nothing that you could bring a death sentence against him. Now he says it's been the custom at your Passover feast, and it was a custom to release a prisoner. Now he says, how about releasing Jesus to you, and that will settle it. And of all things, these people cried out for Barabbas, and he had already made the contrast between the two, shall it be Jesus or Barabbas? And he didn't dream that these religious rulers would urge the people to demand that Barabbas be released. There was too much of a contrast. And believe me, now this man Pilate is startled. He'd like to get away from making a decision. And it's quite obvious that that's the thing that he wants to do. He doesn't want to make a decision against him. So he takes Jesus on the inside. Now, may I say, as I suggested last time, that we wanted to see that this man Pilate was definitely trying to escape making a decision. He actually was on trial and not Jesus. Now, will you notice, first of all, we have here that Pilate was assured of the innocency of the Lord Jesus, and he acknowledged it at least seven times. He said, I find no fault in him. Pilate was willing to release him, according to Luke 23, 20. And then 23, 22, he says, I let him go. And then in John 19:12, we'll come down to that in a few moments, Pilate sought to release him. And then in Acts 3:13, it says Pilate was determined to let him go. Now, Pilate was urged earnestly by his own wife not to sentence him. And we find that he actually endeavored to bring about his acquittal. He urged the Jews to judge him themselves. And he sent him to Herod, only for the Lord Jesus to be returned back to him. Then he asked for Barabbas to be delivered and that Jesus be released. Yet in spite of all of that, Pilate did give sentence that Jesus should be crucified. Now, will you notice this? Verse 1, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And friends, may I say this, 
that if Jesus is innocent, he should be turned loose. He should be made a free man. If he's guilty of the charge that was brought against him, then he should have been crucified. There's no middle ground. To scourge Jesus was entirely unlawful, and it was entirely wrong. But he thought this would placate them. And we are told, "...and the soldiers platted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe." You see, when a man had a death sentence against him, the soldiers could have their fun with him before he was crucified. And that's what they did here. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Now notice what is said here. And if we pass by it, we may miss something. They smote him with their hands. Now, that's a game they played in that day. That was known as hot hand. And when a prisoner was delivered over for a death sentence, after all, they could mutilate him, do anything they wanted to with him, What they would do, all the soldiers would show him their fist, and then they would blindfold him, and all of them would hit him as hard as they could with the exception of one. And then they would take the blindfold off, and if he was still conscious, he was to guess who it was that didn't hit him. And, of course, he never guessed who that was. They saw to that. Then again, they blindfold him and go through it again. Friends, when they got through with him, he was beaten into a pulp. And I actually believe that the Lord Jesus was so mutilated that you would not even have recognized him, friends. And I think that's exactly what Isaiah meant when he says in Isaiah 52, 14. And remember, that's part of Isaiah 53. Listen to this. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. The Lord Jesus was marred more than any other person. I had an officer of my church who was captain of a fire department in Nashville, Tennessee, And he was out early one morning on a call, and he went along sitting on top of the ladder rig, and a milk truck crossed in front of them, and they veered to miss it. And it flipped this truck over, and it dragged these men that were on top. I was called early that morning. I went to the hospital, and I walked in and looked at this man. And as I looked at him, I did not even recognize him. His face did not look like a face. It's just a hole where he was breathing. That was all I could recognize. I couldn't even see an eye of him. Couldn't tell what was his nose. And as I stood there in astonishment looking at this man, I thought of this verse. Jesus was marred more than any man. So he must have been marred more than that man that was there. It's difficult for you and me to really understand. I think it was shocking now when they took him outside and the crowd viewed him again. Verse 4, now, they move outside again. And you remember, they start off in the palace of Caiaphas. Then they move over to Pilate's hall, outside. Pilate took him inside, brought him outside. Then he took him inside. Now they come outside again. Pilate therefore went forth again, and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. And yet he's beaten him, and he's been beaten in an inch of his life. It was not just at all. 
Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. Now, we make a great deal of that, yes, behold the man, but also behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He's on the way now to the cross. Now, verse 6, When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And it was at this point that he called for the basin of water and washed his hands. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, and this is the religious rulers, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Pilate, you see, is not satisfied. And again, he takes him inside. So verse 9, we go again. And went again into the judgment hall, and he saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then said Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not of me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and I have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. There's differences of sin, different of judgment. Those that delivered you, the religious rulers, they had more light than you did. But that, of course, didn't exonerate Pilate at all. He's guilty. But you see, what he's trying to do is get off the hook, if I may use the common parlance of the street. He wanted to escape making a decision here if he could do it. And from thenceforth, listen, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews, these religious rulers, cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. You see, they were prepared to report Pilate to Rome, that he was passing by that which was subversion, that which was nothing in the world but treason. And Pilate didn't want that to happen, of course. He's a politician. Our Lord is in the hands of a cheap politician, by the way. It's awful today when government, either in a church or in a state, gets in the hands of men who are hungry for power and who do not regard either God nor man like that judge the Lord told about. It's a dangerous situation. Now we go outside again, if you please. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said unto the Jews, the religious rulers now, behold your king. And friends, you're seeing him now being delivered actually into the hands of sinful men, both religious and political. And you're seeing what the death of Christ was to the world. And I'd like for you to notice this. The death of the Lord Jesus can be viewed 
from several different viewpoints, by the way. From the standpoint of God, the cross was a propitiation. That is, it was a mercy seat where God can extend mercy to you and me. It was where full satisfaction was made so that a holy God and a righteous God could reach down and save sinners. And the very judgment throne of God becomes a mercy seat where you and I can find mercy, and we ought not to find it because we're guilty. But he bore our guilt. Now, from the standpoint of the Lord Jesus himself, he's the Savior. And it was a sacrifice. It was a sweet-smelling savor, you see. And he made himself an offering, an offering to sin. And it was an act of obedience, too, by the way, because Paul in Philippians says he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, from the standpoint of you and of me who are believers, it was a substitution. He took my place. He took your place. He was the one who was sinless. He was suffering for the sinner. He was the one who was just suffering for the unjust. And he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sins, might live unto righteousness. Now, from the standpoint of Satan, it was a triumph and also a defeat because it was a triumph way back to Genesis 3.15, where now the heel of the woman's seed, you see, is now being bruised. But it's going to be a defeat, because the head of the serpent is yet to be crushed. He's going to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, from the standpoint of the world outside, and you hear this argued, and unfortunately, the church looks at it this way today. It was nothing in the world but a brutal murder. That's the way John is presenting it, by the way, to us at this particular point. It's nothing in the world but a brutal murder, my friends, that we have before us. They kill the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, is what Peter said you remember. Now, that's what we're seeing in this particular section here. So, will you notice? They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. That is the thing that they're saying here. And that reminds us of Matthew 27, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made. He took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. But it's also ironical that the oldest creed of the church says, crucified under Pontius Pilate, he couldn't wash his hands. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. That is the picture that is given to us here. They took Jesus and they led him away. And we have given to us over in Psalm 94, verse 20, and listen to this. 
shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee which frame mischief by a law. They gathered themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemned the innocent blood. That's what they've done. And he bearing his cross went forth unto a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And it's where they crucified him. And again, even John does not give us a picture of the crucifixion at all, none of the details at all. And we're told here where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title, put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. We said before, you need to put all four of the gospel titles together, and you get the complete title. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. And I think this is one of the most remarkable things that we have here. You'll recall that they led him outside the city to crucify him. And they didn't want to crucify him inside the city. And I think they took him out to Golgotha there. And I think Gordon's Calvary is accurate. But the very interesting thing is, they're not only fulfilling prophecy, but they're fulfilling a tremendous type in the sin offering. You remember both the bullock and the goat were taken outside the camp and slain. The Lord Jesus is dying for even the sins of those men that have handed in the decision against him. And I wonder if they really even had any thought that they might be fulfilling prophecy. Well, they were. Now, will you notice, Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I'm king of the Jews. And you will remember that it was night of the city. It was written in Hebrew. That's the language of religion, and it was written in Greek, and that was the language of culture and education, and it was written in Latin. That's the language of law and order. And so it was written for the world to see that he died for all. Then we're told the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they made four parts to every soldier part, and also his coat. Now, the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. It was a peasant's garment, but a good one, apparently. Someone had given it to him. Wouldn't you love to have been the one that gave him that garment? They said, Therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots. And so they shot craps at the foot of the cross in order that they might get his garment. And the Scripture was fulfilled. They parted my vesture. They did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. That's Psalm 22:18 was being fulfilled. And now we have this incident about there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by him, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. What he's saying is, this is your son, the hour has come, and I'll clear your name. And he did by his death and resurrection. Saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. That evident was John. He had a home there in the city. Now, verse 28, after this. You see, none of the details are given of the crucifixion. 
the Spirit of God pulled down upon that a mantle of night that you and I might not be able to see it. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. The Scripture yet to be fulfilled. And he said, I thirst. There was set a vessel full of vinegar. They filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. And that fulfilled Psalm 69, 21. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It's finished to tell us thy. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. And I'm dropping down now to verse 33. Therefore, we find that when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it by record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith truth, that ye might believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And that's Psalm 34:20. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. So that two Scriptures were actually fulfilled. A bone was not broken. And again, another Scripture says, "...they shall look on him whom they pierced." And that's Zechariah 12:10. yet to be fulfilled. Both were fulfilled. That is, the first one was, a bone was not broken, but they pierced his side. And that soldier there that day, when he didn't break his bone, but pierced his side, didn't know he was fulfilling two Scriptures. We've had the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross now, and here we have his burial. And when we get to chapter 20, which we'll get to today, we'll see there the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these are the great facts, the great historical facts that are basic for the gospel. What is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that's important. John tells us about it here. And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. These are the great central facts of the gospel. Now, it's our relationship to that, which is a relationship of trusting in him and having faith in what he did for us, on the cross, that he was dying in our room in our stead. He was dying a vicarious, substitutionary, redemptive death for us. Now let me begin reading at verse 38. And after this, well, after what? Well, after John has recorded to us here the crucifixion of Christ and that that he gave us concerning it, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. That's verses 38 and 39 of the 19th chapter of John's Gospel. Now, I do not mean to be irreverent in any way, but the undertakers who handled the body of Jesus were Joseph of Arimathea, apparently a man who was well-to-do financially, 
and Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews, the one who came to our Lord by night. Now, both of these men were what we would call today secret disciples of Christ. And now they come out in the open for the first time. And let's not be critical of them during the time they were secret disciples, because now the disciples or apostles of the Lord have been scattered like sheep, and they have gone undercover. But now these men come out in the open. And it's quite interesting that at this time, after his death and resurrection, they came out in the open. And Joseph was the one who asked for the body, and it was given to him, and he had a new tomb. And Nicodemus, he came also. He'd been more or less of a secret disciple. And now he brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Now, what did they do? Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now, down in the land of Egypt, the children of Israel learned embalming. It is the belief of some that they not only learned embalming down there, but they were the ones who probably perfected the method that the Egyptians had of preserving the body. Because to a child of God, there is that connected with the body of the believer that we believe whether in the Old Testament or the New, the body will be raised someday of the believer. It's sown in corruption, it'll be raised in incorruption. Sown in weakness, raised in power. And it will be also glorified body. And for that reason... Why, the child of God has always had a particular reverence and care and concern for the body, but nothing pagan about it. Of course, the Egyptians became very pagan in this connection and were pagan in their thought of it. But the child of God has had a care about the burial of his body, but nothing that's been elaborate and especially like today that we sometimes see many funerals. The whole thought was that the funeral service should bear out the fact that if this person is a child of God, that someday the believers would be with this loved one again. That is always the important thing. Now, they learned embalming as the Egyptians did it. And that was apparently the manner here. If you'll notice, they had linen cloth, and they had a hundred pound of myrrh, and they wrapped it. Now, notice that. And what the Egyptians did, you see, they would take the myrrh and aloes, and then they would begin wrapping a finger. When they'd get a finger wrapped, they'd rub in the myrrh and aloes. Then they'd do another finger and so on. Then when they've done all the fingers, then they'd wrap the hand. And as they wrapped, they would put in the myrrh and aloes. That would seal it. That would keep the air out. Then when they'd finished wrapping the hand, they'd wrap the arm. When they finished wrapping the arm, they'd wrap it to the body, having wrapped the body previously. So that, you see, the body was made a well over a hundred hundred pounds more than it actually weighed at the very beginning. In other words, and again, I want to say I'm not being irreverent, they made a mummy of the Lord Jesus. And that is something to keep in mind in reference to the resurrection. 
Now we're told, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they, Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. You see, this was convenient, too. They took him down before the Passover evening, before sundown the Passover began. And it was made possible by having this tomb close by. And they put him in there, and it actually wasn't concluded, because you'll recall that on the first day of the week, the women came with more myrrh, and they intended to put that in the body.